You're listening to This Naked Mind with Annie Grace. Hi, this is Annie Grace and welcome to This Naked Mind podcast. And I'm here with Christy. Hi, Christy. How are you? Hi, Annie. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing good. Really good. So why don't you sort of take us back to the beginning in your story and your relationship with alcohol? Like where did it all start for you? Yeah. Um, so I grew up born and raised in Minnesota. I uh, was only child in my house growing up. My parents split probably when I was about three and my dad was my primary caretaker. So they shared custody, but I grew up with my dad and in the eighties in a little town in Minnesota, that was really unusual, not only to have a single parent home, but for a little girl to be raised by her dad. And so it was always this really weird area for me to be bullied a little bit in school. There was always this unusual part of, you know, some kids couldn't sleep over at my house for my birthday growing up. And so it was this really sensitive part where it felt like I lived in this weird existence that was unaccepted. And so really early on, I kind of got this insecurity and anxiety around kind of a little bit of abandonment, a little bit of fear of, you know, not being accepted for who I was. And, you know, I think I just became this like perfectionist little kid who really tried to win people over by either, you know, being over participatory in things and getting good grades. And when I turned 14, I kind of got introduced to alcohol. I was at a friend's cabin for the weekend with her and her younger siblings and another classmate and her parents. And one day the, her mom decided, well, I'm going to take all the kids to the local resort to play in the arcade and get us all out of the house so dad can work on the cabin. And we went and we were about 14 years old. And when we arrived, the, the arcade was a part of the bar. Uh, we walked in and there was all these boys our age at the pool table and all the girls got excited. They were going to go flirt with boys. And I was really shy and insecure and I wanted nothing to do with flirting with boys. And so I held back and just kind of sat with her mom at this table in the bar instead. And she looked at me and like, why aren't you going to go hang out with the rest of the kids? And I said, well, I, I, I don't, I don't want to, I'm no. And so she's like, okay. And I, you know, I really think she was taking it easy on this nervous little kid and said, well, do you like margaritas? And I was confused. I, my parents didn't have alcohol around the house. I didn't know what it tasted like. And she said, it's sweet. And they don't know you're not my daughter. Fun fact, weird fact in Wisconsin, you can order drinks for your children at a bar and you don't have to prove they're yours either. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So she ordered us margaritas and we sat and had girl time. And it was this sweet little bonding moment for me in this really weird time of feeling like I was going to not be accepted in my hesitancy to go flirt with the boys. And a little while later, all the other kids came, all the other girls came back and, and they got excited and wanted to know what we were up to. And so she ordered margaritas for all the girls and we all sat and giggled about our brain freezes and the sweetness of it or the tartness of it. And I just remember it feeling so warm in my belly, but just 
enjoying that moment together. And all of a sudden it was this like secret connection for me. And so, you know, all of a sudden summers at the cabin where we were allowed to drink with her parents became this nice little oasis. And as we got older, more and more opportunities to drink came up, right? In middle school, high school, all of a sudden people are having parties. And I started to realize that this was a way that I felt comfortable fitting in with my peers when I felt like such a weird little outsider. And, but I maintained my perfect grades. And so I thought this was a way that proved where I was just like, yep, I, I'm not bad. I, I still get good grades. This is just how I go have fun on the weekends. And, you know, as, as adolescence turns from flirting into now boyfriends and dates, and I was still shy, it became this way for me to still hang out with everybody without having to find a boyfriend or hold hands in the hallways at school. I could just learn to drink like the boys instead. And so I started to turn this into a persona, this party clown, this goofball, but it made me feel like I fit in. And I, I took that all the way into college because for me, it became this way to look at, well, you know, all of a sudden in college, you, you were learning about roofies and people are getting pregnant or, you know, worse. And it became this really safe space to all of a sudden be a wing woman and drink with the boys because they weren't hitting on me, but I could, you know, help them flirt with girls. But I also had a safe protector all throughout, you know, an evening of, you know, going out to house parties. And so I kept with that behavior for a number of years. And by 19, I had a fake ID. And by 22, I had my first and well, my only DUI. And it was on a night where I just remember being at a friend's party and I still had that fifth grade dare education mentality on, hey, you know what? The liver processes one drink of alcohol per hour. So doing the math in my smart little head, I thought, well, I could have four beers, rest for a little bit and drive home. I don't have to stay at the guy's house and I'll be fine. And so I did that. I kept myself to four beers, very religious uh, slept for a couple hours in somebody's, you know, living room chair and then drove myself home and it was pouring rain and I wound up in a ditch still thinking I was the smartest cookie in the world and that I understood alcohol in my body. I did what I could only think of back in the day where cell phones only held 10 cell phone numbers in them because they weren't connected really to the internet. I called 911 and said I got stuck in a ditch. And the state trooper shows up and still thinking that I was totally sober and knew what I was doing. He asked, have you been drinking? And I was totally honest. I said, yeah, I had four beers, but it's been hours, sir. It's already worked its way out of my system. And he gave me the breathalyzer and I failed. And I just remember sitting in the back of the squad car, looking at my car in the ditch, thinking this is the most sober I've driven home in weeks. Wow. And I just accepted it. Like you screwed up, you screwed up big time and you thought you were doing everything right. And so I, my parents bailed me out of jail. And a couple of days later, my best friend says, Hey, I found an AA meeting in town where we grew, you know, I, we both still lived with our parents said, let's go, we'll meet up there. And so I 
took my old bicycle and rode to the local church so I could go to this meeting. And we sat in the back and listened, you know, very just intrigued to all the stories, you know, all this pain, people getting arrested, getting kicked out of their homes. And I just remember wanting to drink even more as I listened, all these people talking about how they could never drink again, could never drink again. And I just thought, gosh, I really want to drink. But we stuck it out. And afterwards, we were talking to this woman outside and, you know, trying to participate in fellowship. And I shared with her a lot of just the shame I felt and the the DUI and how I was, you know, starting to put these pieces together that I was a little out of control and something was wrong and I needed like I needed to make a change. And, you know, she kind of looks at me and says, well, hey, kid, do you do you still live with your parents? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I still live with my parents. Well, did they kick you out? No. Okay. Did you lose your job? No. All right. This is your first DUI, she says. And I'm like, yeah. She said, you're not at rock bottom, kid. Keep drinking. And I just was shocked when she said that. And she walked away. And just left it at that. Keep drinking, kid. And so my girlfriend left. We had a you know small conversation about like how weird that was. And I rode my bicycle straight to the bar and got a beer. Cause I was like, okay. And I sat there and I just remember thinking, I'm not even accepted here for the worries I have. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm not even good enough at being drunk to be here. And I, I came back for a couple meetings and they gave me a free copy of the big book and I tried reading through it and I, but it just kept feeling like, nope, you don't belong here, kid. Go away. Keep, you know, just keep drinking, come back later. And I was really despondent. I was so, I didn't know what to do at that point. So I really didn't drink much for a few months also because I didn't have a license. I couldn't go party with my friends. And uh, I started dating this guy who came from, you know, parents who had divorced and remarried and half were sober through AA and half were still active drinkers and alcohol abusers. And his only rule was, nope, I don't want to date a drunk. And I was like, I want somebody to accept me for not drinking. And so it was like, this sounds like a great agreement. Let's do this. And His family took me in and, you know, just said, we can, you know, we'll tell you about the tenants of AA without ever making me feel pressured to go. And they were so sweet and so caring. I actually still have the the one year coin they did give me to motivate me. And I was sober for like three and a half years while dating him through the, just a lot of the teachings they had just about, you know, like, well, how to avoid your triggers, how to, you know, recognize like, okay, these kind of parties bother you or, you know, make you want to drink. So now we don't go to those, or we would go to weddings and stick together, but it was always this us versus them. It was, we don't really talk to the people who are actively drinking. We stay together. And so there was always this moment of looking over my shoulder as if part of the world was still happening around me, but I couldn't participate in it. And so there was this longing, but we, but I stuck it out for three and a half years. I got through college. I got my first job and, you know, working in corporate America, all of a sudden it was wonderful. And we, um, 
eventually broke up. It was just, it was not meant to be. And that was fine. But all of a sudden I was single and working and, you know, where everybody has happy hour, there's wine at every book club and it was sophisticated and it was adult. And so at that time I told myself, well, I just did three and a half years without alcohol. I don't have a problem. I can get, go back to drinking. And so I started drinking wine with my girlfriends on girls nights and book club nights. And I eventually met my now husband and he had a very active social life. And so we were going to rock concerts and there's a a huge bicycling community here in Minneapolis that we got, you know, he was big into. And so I got into it, made some wonderful friends, but there was a ton of drinking events around, but I was an adult now. I had rules. I wasn't going to drink and drive. I wasn't going to get wasted on a Tuesday, but eventually it turned into drinking every night of the week to the point where I couldn't remember a night that I didn't drink. It was just constant and it was always coming up. As our relationship improved, we had a home, we had a dog, I had best friends, I had all these wonderful people in my world, all of a sudden, all those fears in my life from childhood of not being worthy of, of being abandoned, of people leaving me all started bubbling back up. And so all of a sudden, I was afraid that I was going to lose all these friends that they were going to find better friends, my husband was going to find somebody better than me. And I started drinking more to mask that to hide that I wasn't enough for them. And so that daily drinking turned into a bottle of wine, more than a bottle of wine a night, and blacking out multiple times a week. And then it got to this point where all of a sudden, every day, every morning, the first few hours was just this mental battle with myself. How much did you drink last night? What kind of a loser are you? Why do you need to drink that much? You know, your husband's mad at you. You know, your best friends could do better than you. And I would just beat the crap out of myself all morning long over how much I had drank the night before until the point where I finally just came to terms with myself. And I would say, well, you've got everything else in life. You've got a great husband. You got great friends. You got a cute dog. You own your own home. This is this is just the balance. Like you're just broken inside. You've got everything else, but you just, you're just going to have to deal with the fact that you're not good enough. And this is what goes on in your head. And that went on for so many years and the depression kept getting worse and the anxiety kept getting worse. And finally, one day, a buddy of mine, we're just hanging out like on the last day of September at a bicycle race. And he said, we were just drinking beers. And he said, I'm going to do sober October next month. And I said, okay, what's that? You know, it seems pretty easy. What you just don't drink. He said, yeah, you don't drink for the month of October. And we were good drinking buddies. So I was like, "Ah, okay, I can do that with you. Sure thing. No problem. All right. Just don't drink. Got it. He's like, yeah, you'll find everything on social media about this. This will be great. And so I, you know, go on Instagram and I follow hashtag sober October. Like I'm going to learn. I can just not drink for a month. No problem. And I, I, you know, got through the first couple of days and all of a sudden around like week two, it was like, oh, okay. My stomach feels better. My brain feels good. This is interesting. I'm clear headed at work, but it's still hard. Like, I don't know what to do with my hands. I don't know what to do with my time. I don't know what to say when people ask me about this. I'm just barreling through it like a bull. Just, I'm just not going to drink. 
by like the third week, I finally broke down and got beer and then wine. And then it was screwdrivers the next morning. And I just, I didn't know how to handle my world sober, how to handle my friends and my social events. I didn't know what to do with myself. And so I went straight back to drinking, but at the time, you know, the, the thoughts started coming back, that self-sabotage, that, that anger, that self-hatred, but I didn't unsubscribe to Sober October. And I started seeing this naked mind pop up and it kept popping up. And so one day I was like, all right, I'm going to listen to the first podcast. It was actually the first podcast I'd ever listened to. I was not a podcast person. And so I listen and I, I don't know. It's, I swear the timestamps like 52 seconds where you say you talk about waking up at three o'clock in the morning and that Annie, what are you doing? Annie, you know, why are you doing this? Why can't you control your drinking? And I just stopped what I was doing and realized that I wasn't the only person that had those thoughts. And for the first time in years, I felt so recognizable, so seen, so accepted in my own house, all by myself, listening to your voice talk about this moment. And I was like, wait, this this happens to other people. This isn't just me who's freaking out and doesn't know how to stop drinking. And so I, you know, I quick like put my headphones in, I shove my phone in my pocket, I start doing dishes and I just binge like the first three episodes of the podcast, like, oh my gosh. And just the voice that you, you know, the, the sentiment you got across, I'm like, you don't have to justify wanting to stop right now. You don't have to, like, I'm just going to give you information. And I was like, okay, give me, give me information, feed this for me. And I instantly was sucked in. And I went to bed that night and all of a sudden I'm laying there about to fall asleep. And I realized I'd only had four glasses of wine that night, which was a shock to me. Usually it was six or seven or eight glasses. And I'd only had four. And I was just like, okay, that's interesting, but I'm going to keep drinking. And so I did for a couple more weeks until we got to, you know, and I just kept, I picked up the book and I was reading through your book and really collecting just so much of that science, especially about the way alcohol was impacting depression and anxiety. It was the most impactful science that you displayed. And I was just, okay, okay, keep reading, keep reading. And then I started paying attention, like, what does alcohol feel like when I'm drinking it? What does this wine do? How does that feel? You know, kind of be, like you said, being mindful of it. Okay. Okay. But then there was still something in me that's like, I get it, but I'm still going to keep drinking. I get it. And then Thanksgiving come, came around and like any other time I'm at my dad and stepmom's house and we're drinking wine. And I think we put down eight bottles of wine and there was maybe four people with glasses on the table. And I just remember I was so drunk. I could not get out of my chair. My butt was just molded into it. And I remember just resting my head back, closing my eyes for a moment. And the next thing I knew I was home in bed and it was the next morning. And I walked out in the kitchen and my husband's making breakfast and he looks at me and just laughs. And he says, you girls were so drunk last night. I was like, okay, sure. And he was like, I'm glad your sister let us drive her home. We've never driven my sister home. Like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, we drove her home last night. And I just looked at him. I said, I don't remember leaving. 
And it just, I walked away with my coffee and I sat down in my living room and thought, what if that was the last time I saw my family or the last time they saw me? And that was what we left each other with. It was like that broke that last piece that said, you don't have to keep drinking. Like you don't have to live like this. And so I listened, you know, picked the book back up that evening, finished reading it. And the next morning I just said, I'm not going to drink. And even though the night that last night I drank everything in the house and wound up with a horrible hangover the next morning, my mind was calm the next morning because I, I felt it. I was like, I'm not going to drink today. And by dinner time, I poured myself a fresca and I looked at my husband. And I said, Hey, I haven't had a drink today. And he just kind of smiles and he was shocked himself. He was like, good job. But he's like, why don't you just try to drink less. And for the first time I was honest with him. And I said, I don't think I can drink less. I think this is bigger than that. I think it's going to be better if I don't drink. And I just kept going and kept going and kept listening to more podcast episodes and branching out and reading more books and more podcasts and finding more ways to go. But it was so important for me to find a way to live my life without giving up my people and my favorite things that I had to just find a way to make myself stronger. And this naked mind gave me so many of those resources and kind of that refueled this desire to learn, you know, this perfectionist kid who was a straight A student and studied like a crazy kid. But all of a sudden I was reading Carol Dweck's book on mindset and I was reading Gabor Mate and, you know, I've been reading, you know, listening to every one of the podcasts I could find. And I was just like, I can do this. And that was what I needed was that strength and that self-belief that I could. Wow. That's just amazing. Wow. I love that. So since, since that has happened, how have things like Thanksgiving dinner been? Have, have you had family celebrations and yeah it was really interesting like the very first Christmas so I've been now sober three and a half years so I've had to go through many holidays um sober I got sober right before the pandemic started probably just a couple months before it actually like really started shutting everything down in the U.S. and um yeah that first Christmas was weird everybody's like well what do you mean you're not drinking at Christmas. I'm like, no, no, like I'm just not having alcohol. Don't count me in, you know, in the whole planning of how many bottles of wine should we get? And I'm like, nope, don't count me. I'm, I won't be there. And my husband was a huge support. He was like, okay, we went and bought one of those, um, those jugs, um, uh, that you can make your own punch with a little spigot. And we made, we looked up recipes for, you know, non-alcoholic holiday punch, and we made a huge vat of it and him and I drank the whole thing and it was like Sprite and ginger ale and cranberry juice and fresh berries and all this and we had such a sugar high it was unbelievable so we were giggling more than I think I ever did on alcohol and then it was the total crash later but it was it was nice to have a sidekick in it but it wasn't like I had to drag somebody with me like he was voluntarily right there by my side. My family's like, okay. And it was awkward at first. Like there was no talking about it. It was that weird elephant in the room. Christy's not drinking and she's usually our reliable drinking partner, but let's not talk about it. And so that was really weird for a while. 
until I think finally people got used to it and realized, you know, I don't, I should ask if you had the same thing, but for a few people in my world, it was, I had to remind them that me being sober was not me automatically judging them. Mm-hmm. You know, did you run into that a lot when you first got sober? Yeah, exactly. It was like, it was literally like when I didn't realize at the time that my own behavior, all it was doing was like showing a mirror to them based on what they thought about their behavior. So I thought that when somebody was like weird stuff would start to happen, right? Like you'd go somewhere and you wouldn't be drinking and someone would sidle up to me and start telling me, like justifying their drinking to me, like, oh yeah, you know, well, I just, I just barely drink. I mean, I, I know, I, I know I have something in my hand right now, but it's, it's really, really infrequent. I almost, I almost never drink. And, you know, so I, I get it. And, um, and they just start justifying. I was like, that's so weird. Why are people telling me about all this stuff? Or they'd feel really like almost, you know, defensive and avoidant and, if they got drunk, then they felt like they could be honest about it. And they'd be like, so what you just think, you know, you must think I'm totally a lush. And I'm like, oh no, I, I didn't even think about you. I'm just right. thinking about me like most humans do. So it was so fascinating to realize that people, and, and then, I, and then I would remember, I was like, oh yeah, in my own life, if somebody wasn't drinking, I was triggered by that. I, I made meanings about myself based on their change. And, but I didn't realize that in the moment, it took me a minute for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That was a weird one. I know like some events, I would just bring a Fresca in a can koozie. So that way it's like, okay, nobody knows what I'm drinking, but it makes them all more comfortable that they can't see it's a Fresca and not an IPA or something. Right. Where it's just like, okay, guys, yep. Don't worry. I've got something in a koozie too. I'm just like you. But it was one of those where I'm like, I don't, I don't want this to be weird. I just want to hang out with you and I'm just not going to drink. And so I would tell people, oh, it's, it's my kryptonite. You know, it's, it's just, I just can't have it. It's like I'm allergic. You know, I I said, if, if, if Brussels sprouts made me black out as much as wine does, I'd give those up too. But the fun fact is I don't like Brussels sprouts. So I willingly give those up, but it's, it's more socially acceptable to just say, Hey, no, no, no. I, I, I don't eat mushrooms where I don't have to justify that, but I, you know, there's often many places where it's like, well, what do you mean? You don't want to drink. I, we were at a, we were at a concert about a year after I got sober and a, a friend of a friend said, Hey, I'm getting everybody around to drinks. What do you want? And he comes up to me. What do you want? You can have anything top shelf, whatever. I said, yeah, I'd love a Sprite. He's like, no, no top shelf. What do you want? You name it. If you want the good vodka, whatever. I said, no, but really, I'm just laughing. I'm like, I really just want a Sprite. That sounds so good right now. And it's really cheap. And he's like, no, seriously, pick a drink. And I go, I would like a Sprite. (laughs) And he just looks at me and walked away and never came back with a Sprite. And I thought, okay. Sure. You can buy me a $20 cocktail, but not a $2 Sprite. I got you. But my hu- it was nice because my husband watched the whole thing. And he was just like, this is so weird. He was like, this is what it's like for you. And I'm like, yes. And so we had a great laugh over it. And it was just like, this is hilarious. But 
this is so weird. It's literally so weird. I remember being out for a work dinner in New York City and I was newly not drinking and not really feeling comfortable talking to people about it yet. And everybody um, ordered a drink and I ordered a gin and tonic. And then I was like, I'm going to go to the restroom. And I got up and I I went and followed the waitress to the bar. And I was like, can you hold the gin for that one for me and all the rest of them? (laughs) And so she was like totally in on it with me. And she did, she held the gin. And it was, it was funny too, because by the end of the meal, I was, you know, just having a lot of fun and I felt really free and I didn't, I didn't feel judged. I didn't feel like there was a wedge because I hadn't really navigated that yet. I was still kind of secretive and they were the colleagues that I was out with. They were like, oh my gosh, like you cannot handle your liquor. You are so out of control because I was just giggling so hard. And I was like losing my mind laughing. And in my mind, I'm just thinking, this is so fun and so hilarious because I haven't drank any liquor all night long. And it was just, you know, but it was, it was interesting. I think it is, it's just a tough thing at first. And I, I always say like, just take as much time as you need to, to feel, feel comfortable with it, but it's hard. It is. It's a slow, slow process, but yeah, it was, it was fun once it was just kind of, I think one of the advice that I thought was most pivotal, pivotal that you gave in the book was really how to approach it with confidence how to go into that conversation with confidence was so important because I could see it in every conversation I had with friends after that, where it was, no, I I'm choosing not to drink. My life is better now without it. And especially with a lot of that self-talk that was going on, you know, I try to describe it. I'm like, it's like I walked away from the most abusive relationship I've ever had with myself. And I know the one way to never recreate that is Mm -hmm. to never drink again. And I'm totally okay with that. And, and that really made it so much easier because it it eliminates that room for people to push back and say, oh no, but you don't really have a problem, right? I, I already had that for years of evidence before me where people weren't saying there was no call for an intervention. There was no you know, you've reached rock bottom and it's like, I, I don't need to wait for everybody else. I'm, I'm making this choice now for me because I don't want to lose it all to try to earn it back or try to like find it again. Like I want to stop now while I have everything in the world that I want. So let's go back for a moment to that minute that you went to your first AA meeting and you yeah. were coming out and the woman, she's like asking you some questions about, you know, is this your first DUI? What else has happened? And, and then she's like, Oh, just keep drinking kid. You haven't hit rock bottom yet. I, I am curious about like what you think the intention behind that was. Yeah. So at the time I, I really understood it to be like, well, you can't come to us for help unless you're worse. Like you don't have a problem. And and that was the part that was really hard because I didn't like where I was. I didn't like what I was experiencing. You know, it was already impacting. I mean, obviously my personal relationships with my family, you know, my poor dad had to bail me out of jail and, <laughs> and my friends and, you know, kind of, I know nowadays meetings are 
everywhere, right? There's probably one every minute of every day in every major metropolis. And this was, you know, I joke the pre-internet world, there was only one meeting that we knew of in town at this time. So it wasn't like I could go elsewhere to find help in kind of, you know, backing that up too, where, where I was, I didn't know anybody who had gone to AA. I didn't, you know, all I understood was what they taught in school where there was alcoholics and then there was normal people. And so mm-hmm. if the alcoholics were like, no, you're normal. You know, that's kind of how I understood it. Like, you're fine. This is just normal behavior. I was like, oh, okay. Maybe I'm just not good at normal either. Yeah. And so it was just this really conflicting, but I thought this is where I go for help, but wait, I can't get help today. How does this work? And so I tried reading through some of the book and you know, I, I know that, you know, they say, well, if you don't hit rock bottom, you can't really get better because it won't be, it won't be as meaningful. I think it was kind of the, the message I got from some of the, the pamphlets and the steps and the books. And it was just, I know so many people who it's worked for. And I'm so, like I said, I, I have a one-year coin from, that was gifted to me when I had my first one year sober, but yeah, it was such a hard place for me to find help in that moment. And then, but then that stuck with me that later on, you know, at that time where I was really trying to say, okay, now I'm struggling. I'm, I'm in my late thirties and I'm really in a bad place. And I really want to get sober. That memory eliminated that from a future path for me. And Mm -hmm. that's where I really went exploring. And, you know, luckily kept seeing this naked mind pop up that it was, I'm going to try this. This is going to work. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, it's, it's not awesome and it's awesome all at once, but <laughs> right. I, like it is interesting because I had, I had such a similar experience with, with someone who went to AA telling me that, you know, I, I almost had the exact experience and somebody literally saying, well, you're not an alcoholic. And with somebody going to AA and, and so from a place of authority and feeling like, okay, well then what, I guess I'll just keep drinking. And I felt like I was in a moment to sort of question my drinking. And, and when that happened, I was like, all right, well, I guess, I guess I'm not, but when, you know, it's like, keep drinking until you hit rock bottom with that sentiment that you experienced I wonder if because so many people do have to hit rock bottom, if there's really actually a belief that it rock bottom is necessary for change. And, and I feel like, okay, well, even if that's true, or even if they believe that's true, I don't believe that's true, but even if they believe that's true, it's so dangerous to tell a kid who's just gotten a DUI to keep drinking. Like it's, it's so dangerous and to feel powerless until things get so bad. And you have to wonder, at least I wonder, what are the belief systems? What are the constructs, the mental constructs that are underlying that assumption that, you know, cause I, I, I don't doubt that she had compassion and I don't doubt that she had desire to help you, but I am like, what must she be believing in order to say, okay, well keep drinking. Cause you obviously haven't hit rock bottom yet she must be believing that rock bottom is, has to be part of the process. And, and what a, what a terrifying belief, you know, 
to think that we can't change before we have to. And I think that's one of the main messages that I like want to shout from the rooftops is like, no, we can change way before we have to. In fact, it's the best time to change is before you have to. Yes. And, and kind of going back to what you said about that experience, right? Where all of a sudden, I think the scary part too, is it, it pushes back and kind of almost makes you question yourself for a moment. We're like, wait, I was so sure I was ready to get help and I was ready to make a change, but you're saying I'm not ready yet. Right. And it's just like, oh, okay. Maybe, maybe my understanding of myself is off and what I'm capable of and what I need. And I think that was a really scary part, but yeah, I a hundred percent agree. It's, we need to be able to live and help people understand this idea that, you know, change can happen when you're ready. And, and I think that's the biggest point with people too, is that when you, when you start that question where you're almost like, I'm ready to type into the Google machine, like, am I an alcoholic? That's almost that first trigger of, yeah, you're ready. You know, you're starting to question it because you're, there's somewhere in your brain or in your thoughts or in your heart that you're starting to realize that alcohol might be negatively impacting my life in a way that I wish it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I, I tell my friends now where I'm like, that's, that's your, that's your first trigger right there is when you start to wonder, like, is it really then yes, because I never wonder like, Hey, are apples screwing up my life? No, (laughs) I I guess some people could be allergic and that could be. So I apologize if that is insensitive, but it, it really is. It's so important for people to know that they have that power to change without having to hit rock bottom, without having to go to jail, without having to lose their job. You know, it shouldn't have to be like, you have to check all these boxes first. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. I think that, you know, we can change with hope instead of fear. And I think that's a, that's a message that just is kind of long overdue in the narrative. Yes. Um, so, well, Christy, let me ask you the question I sort of finished these up with, which is if you were going to go back in time to maybe it's, maybe it's that Christy who is being told that, you know, come back later when you hit rock bottom or you're not, you're not really, there's nothing I can do for you because you haven't hit rock bottom. And you were going to tell her about sort of what life is like now, what would you say? Yeah. That's, that's a hundred percent. Like if I could go back and tell young Christy, it's exactly that, that don't wait for the world to tell you you're ready to stop drinking. Mm. Because if you believe that your life can be better, it will be better. You know, getting sober was the most magical way to reconnect with who I am, who like the authentic self is and be the person I've always wanted to be. And to give me the space to just explore who that is. And my relationships are better. My, my relationship with myself is better. And that's the most important part. And I think, yeah, that's, that's what that girl needed to hear. And my current version loves to celebrate. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you so much. This has just been awesome to get to know you and hear your story. And I, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Annie. This has been wonderful to meet you and to speak one-on-one.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you're ready to see how This Naked Mind can help you on your personal health and wellness journey and want to learn more, go to thisnakedmindpodcast.com to learn what your next best step is. Again, that's thisnakedmindpodcast.com. We have all of our free resources, programs, social links, and more available for you there. Plus, if you have your own naked life story to share, you can submit it there as well. Until next week, stay curious. 